Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Downriver Current podcast presented by the Trend Trib. As always, we received some great feedback from last month's episode, and I think you're all really going to like this month's episode. For this episode, we're bringing on a world traveler, a former state representative, and current Michigan Liquor Control Commissioner, Ed Clemente. We're going to discuss some of his work with the Michigan Liquor Control Commission, some of his work with the Downriver Historical Museums, and get an update on some Downriver business. It's a great episode, and I'm sure you're all going to enjoy it. As always, be sure to leave us a five-star review on iTunes if you're enjoying it. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for inviting me. All right. So like I had mentioned in our intro here, you know, we're going to cover quite a bit of ground here. And there's a lot of ground to cover throughout your uh, your career here. But uh, to start off with uh, with where we're at right now, tell us a little bit about your work with the Michigan Liquor Control Commission. Yeah. So I'm a governor appointee. I've been in the job seven years. And primarily I do in any bar, restaurant, party store, anyone that has a any kind of liquor license at all usually gets a violation either from local police or our own investigators. They have to come in front of me for a hearing. So think of it like a, any like if you got a speeding ticket, you, you, you could either acknowledge it and send it in. So a lot of people do that if they get something minor. But so a lot of times people want to contest it, so I have formal hearings. So I just had hearings yesterday in Sterling Heights. So we go to about, I think it's like 17 different places around the state, up in the UP, because we kind of go where the witnesses and the police departments are and the licensees are, so people don't have to drive like down to Lansing or Southfield. Right, and I mean, I imagine with you know a lot of those fines and tickets being pretty impactful on the businesses, some of those hearings can get pretty uh, heated. I would say. Yeah, it's actually rarer than you think because the, all of my hearings have an attorney general present. So I have six dedicated attorney generals that just do hearings that I work with around the state. So a lot of times, it's usually a place that's already in big trouble that will really fight it. Most of the time, they can negotiate a settlement or sometimes they'll do a stipulated agreement, which is done prior to the hearing. But in general, like yesterday, it was unusual. I had like five contested hearings. I had 22 cases yesterday. So five of them, but they could be very minor Opposition, it could be like we had one for um, whether they bounced the check to the state or not, and they said they put it on the wrong account, and so they bring in paperwork and I have to go through all that before I make my decisions. Right, and I mean, like you said, there with twenty-two cases just in uh, just in one go of it, you still managed to find time for uh, quite a bit of other stuff. Uh, one of those things is your work with the Downriver Historical Museums, uh, those museums around the area. So you know, again, kind of tell us a little bit about your work there. Well, it's not like I do a ton with them, but they do a lot for... I used to teach history in high school. So as you'll see with my ADD career background, uh, I've done a lot of jobs. Um, But I've always been interested in history. That's what my degree was from at State for teaching history, social, social studies. And so I used to also teach Michigan history, and I would spend the section when I would teach just on downriver history too sometimes. So, and I've done quite a bit primarily before what I'm trying to do now, which is do a podcast. And there's something like 20 
historical either commissions or societies downriver for all the cities in their area, plus a couple other larger ones like Downriver Genealogical Group. And then there's the Native Americans have their own organization. They were at the meeting I was just recently at. And so I made a proposal to them to just say, you know, I always feel that as people pass away, that a lot of history is lost with every person that passes away. So there's the urgency is just getting people on record to talk about things that will soon be forgotten. And they all feel the same urgency. It's just hard when they have to run a brick-and-mortar building sometimes. But So that was the proposal. But I have had previous history with historical societies, um, organizations. I've done about six different presentations to like the Wyandotte Historical Society, usually on travel logs. So I've done one on like pre-Columbian societies because I've been to most of the sites in the Western Hemisphere. Did one on Vietnam. Did one in the New Wonders of the World, etc. And then I just did one for Lincoln Park only in April for Clemente's Bar, which my family had for seventy plus years, and we had a great turnout. Like almost one hundred fifty people showed up for it, so it was a good crowd. And that was at the Lincoln Park Historical Museum. And like you had mentioned there, with you know having that background both in history and having traveled to a lot of these places, obviously you know you're the source of information for these presentations. But you know what have you picked up along the way? Um, some of the things that you've learned, you know, throughout about this travel, about it, whether it be through travel or even just in your presentations to these uh, down over historical societies. You, well, I'll get to the logistics maybe second, but primarily. Most Americans don't really travel uh, internationally a lot, and I've been fortunate. Like I think I've been up to like seventy-three countries now. And but for my earliest part of my career, till about forty, I played rugby, like international rugby. So I traveled to like five different continents, maybe six. Right? Is there seven? Right? Seven with Antarctica. Seven. Seven with Antarctica. Yeah, I haven't played. There's no rugby in Antarctica, but. But I traveled for rugby all those different places, and it really opened my eyes because I was young when I first started traveling, like South Africa, I think I was 21, with a team that I went down there with. And so, if anything, I think it makes me at least a better American in that I don't take anything for granted in America. And I think a lot of Americans are very entitled sometimes. And I think when you travel more of the world, you really do appreciate what we have here in this country. And I think that that's probably the best thing. And I think I'm going to paraphrase Mark Twain, but he said, anyone that travels cannot be prejudiced, you know, and it's true because when you see how other people live, you tend to become a, hopefully a better, well-rounded person. Right. And I, I mean, I hate to put you on the spot here, but, you know, I'm sure our listeners would be curious as, as someone who's traveled uh, to so many different places, I guess, what would be maybe some of your off the beaten path recommendations? So not necessarily like a, a Paris well, it or... it is. Yeah, no, no, no. In fact, uh, I don't really care for Paris that much. <laughs> I've been there, but it's like so touristy. Right. Um, I would think one of my... I, I actually, a big chunk of those countries are third world countries. So, and I've backpacked on my own in certain parts. Like, I've been to Africa four times now. And one of the more interesting trips, actually, I think, was Zimbabwe. Because we went white water rafting. We also, just one buddy of mine, another rugby guy, we did a four-day canoe safari down the Zambezi River with a guide and one other canoe, another two people. And just the, the things we saw from a canoe... 
is very different than what you'd see from like a ATV or whatever you're driving around with some of the safaris. So, and we played a lot of rugby while we were there. We saw like Victoria Falls. I mean, from a a young per- person's perspective, like it was probably one of the best things I think I ever did at that point, just because I could physically do a lot of stuff. And I probably wouldn't do a lot of those today because I look back on it, it's pretty scary. And I probably wouldn't whitewater raft on that class rapids again. It's one of the toughest in the world. And there was a guy drowned, in fact, the day we were there. So, yeah, that was interesting. But being other and seeing how other people live, not necessarily poor, but live within their means is always healthy, I think, for everybody. Right. And I mean, like you said there, even beyond just the fear of like the white rider rafting as, as far as that is an experience, I think with international travel, I think a barrier for a lot of people is the fear of going to these different um, cultures and these different uh, countries that they're not familiar with. So, I mean, how do you overcome that and how do you kind of work through that as far as, you know, you don't necessarily know the situation you're going into? Well, I think a lot of people's uh, sort of fear isn't necessarily xenophobia. It's kind of more they're afraid because, you know, either they see just like if a person just saw America today and you lived in, say, uh, Saudi or something, you know, every night you watch TV, you think there's like murders constantly. You would think there's protests everywhere. There's people getting killed on highways constantly. I mean, you would think America is one of the most crazy places in the world, but we know it's not. And that same impression is like if you see like protests, you know, like in Hong Kong, you think Hong Kong's crazy all the time. It's not. Um, or you see protests, say, in Puerto Rico. You know, it's like the rest, 99% of the rest of Puerto Rico is probably, there's nothing going on that's like challenging. So I've been in some pretty risky places. Like, for example, I was in Northern Ireland when the troubles were still going on. Uh, we had three bomb scares. Uh, I was in South Africa, still when apartheid exists. And I was in um, in either, was it Israel? Yeah, I think I was still in Israel or I was in the Palestine-occupied territories when the Intifada was going on. But when you're there, you don't really think about that stuff because... Like someone called me up yesterday, they said, because uh, I went to Pakistan in February, and someone goes, aren't you scared there's all those bombings are all the time? And I go, chances are, the thing I should be worried about is a foodborne illness or a mosquito biting me. Those are the two things you should be most scared about when you travel, is things you really don't even see coming, because the odds of getting blown up or getting robbed or anything are so minuscule, but... Everybody sees the news and they think that's the way it is all the time there. So it really enlightened me as far as uh, how important the rest of the world is. And if it was up to me, I'd just travel the rest of my life. Right. And so with that, all of that international travel and you know being all over to so many different countries, that's kind of led you to an organization called Global Ties Detroit. So, I mean, tell our listeners a little bit about uh, that organization your your work with them. Yeah, the quick sort of uh, elevator speech on them is they're an organization that works closely with the U.S. Department of State and it's actually designated to host international sort of delegations as they come through the United States. So uh, we try to make sure if there's people they need to meet when they're here or their itinerary when they're here. And so it's a grant process 
but primarily we're the one they work through. Them and as well as USAID, I don't know if you ever heard of USAID, but it's very similar. So what they'll do, they might identify leaders, say, and we just hosted a group in from Pakistan, and they were... We went there previously, and it was sort of like a Shark Tank thing, where we interviewed about 23 different startup companies, and then we picked five to come here to the U.S., to Detroit only, and we hooked them up with mentors who could help them with their entrepreneurship activities, and then bring it back to Pakistan. So it's sort of a low-level diplomacy kind of thing. It's like citizen diplomacy, too, to a degree, Uh, but that's kind of what it is. And just to give you an example, just recently... I hosted, or I didn't host, I sort of gave an informal tour uh, to Henry Ford Museum through for 23 high school kids from Kuwait. This, and so, but I've done about six or eight of these groups because it's close to my house. I, they always call me up and say, can I take a group and walk them around? Usually you only get like an hour and a half. And so I've had Russians from Sri Lanka, I've had Ukraine, um, just a lot of interesting groups just coming in there. Really good questions, and I think, personally, the Henry Ford Museum is probably one of the uh, um, most unique things in the state to see. Like, if you came to Michigan, that'd be the one thing I would probably tell people to see, because it's almost like a Smithsonian-quality museum that is so eclectic, it doesn't really make sense when people first come here. They think it's a museum about Henry Ford. And it's not. In fact, there's hardly anything in there about Henry Ford. But it's fascinating, everything that's in there. And that's why I like doing the tours. Right. And as far as the organization goes, you know, what impact have you seen it make? Well, it's unique because one of the reasons I got into this is for the reason you were just mentioning about the international. I feel whenever I travel, I'm sort of a representative of my country, even though I'm not formally and I didn't think that way a lot when I was younger, but I know as I got older, this is their image because I might be the only person from America they might ever meet. Right. So you kind of, even though you want to kind of have fun when you travel, you also got to make sure you're sort of representing. And so I figured what better way than this organization to actually give a better image of the United States by trying to help these people as much as possible. So they go back home and they say, oh, Detroit's a great place, you know. But also, I think Detroit has such a sort of a, even though everybody talks about it being the darling city that's turned around, et cetera, um, it still has a lot of rough edges. So when people come here, we're always trying to make sure the image of Detroit, because the Midwest is by and large forgotten by the two coasts. And especially beyond Chicago, really no one else knows anything about the Midwest. If you don't have any friends from New York or New Jersey, they're like, what's there to do, you know, and West Coast is the same way. Um, so I feel like this is my opportunity to sort of make a difference because there's probably no, nothing more important than make an impression of people that can then go back and maybe want to invest in a company here. Uh, they might want to uh, go to university here, like that group of high school kids. Some of them might have been introduced to someone at U of M, Wayne State, MSU, or smaller schools and want to come here because of what they ran into. You know, a lot of people are like that. When you're in high school, if you're very impressionable and you go to one place and even though there's a lot of other places that might be better, you'd love that one place because you were there as a kid. And you go like, oh, I really like Ann Arbor. I really like, you know, Detroit or whatever. Right. And to kind of touch it back to the Downriver area, you know, how do you think, even though, you know, like you said, most of this is centered in Detroit, how do you think this trickles back to Downriver? 
Well, uh, even though Dearborn technically, I guess they don't consider that part of Downriver, but I am the only person on our board that's actually from Downriver. Okay. So I've taken, I did like a, it's called a FAM tour, but a familiarization tour of the executive director from Global Ties to Trade to start getting them to do stuff with Downriver more, especially like, for example, we might have public safety people in. I've been trying to hook them up with, say, uh, Tony Arminiak at Wayne County Community College, president of the Downriver Campus one, to do something at their fire training center. So that's the kind of things they might be interested in. I don't think people know the assets of Downriver very well. And that's partially our own fault sometimes for not uh, doing a better job marketing ourselves, which is kind of what you're doing now and what the trip tries to do as well. And so there's sort of a vacuum, you know, the Southern Wayne County Chamber, the DCC, and there's not many other people that really sort of regionally kind of represent the area like there used to be. Right. And I think, how do you think we can kind of get to that point where, you know, obviously Detroit, everyone does talk about their, their positives and then coming back, but, you know, Downriver has come along with them too. So I think how do, how does Downriver as a whole kind of make that next step? Well, I, I think... And you probably, I don't know, you're younger than me, but there's still a lot of people tell me they don't want to go downtown. And there's nothing, I got a friend who lives in South Lyon, and he's only come to Detroit like three times in the last 10 years. Oh my gosh. And I know there's people like that downriver as well. Yep. But what I see, like in my home, I live in Lincoln Park, I see a lot of people who are young professionals, just starter homes, buying homes, because it's, you know, more affordable. So I, it's not just like people leaving Detroit. It's also people that want to work downtown. But as you know, you got friends, I'm sure, that live downtown. It's so overpriced and the, the, there's like a 95% occupancy. So it's they're charging premium rates for apartments. And uh, today on the news, I heard, um, I think it's Kid Rock selling his house on the waterfront for like $2.5 or something. But he bought it for 400000 Right. So... I'm not sure Detroit's come that far, but, you know, people want to live. I think we're a great place to live if you work downtown. Right. And especially if you're a young couple, you got married. It's like uh, there's a lot of different communities you can choose from a big variety. And I think, I don't know if we mentioned that I was the former president of the Southern Wayne County Chamber of Commerce. But um, that was a big chunk of what I did was trying to familiarize people with Downriver. I remember I hosted a... uh, economic development summit downriver through the university of michigan once and we did all these tours for developers from around the world but mainly the united states but they came down here and we drove them on a bus tour and took them to all the different potential spots different residency neighborhoods parks you know the big attractions of downriver probably are the waterfront we're close to the airport close to downtown detroit we have very affordable housing you know we have good schools you know all those things right and, yeah, I mean, to your point about, you know, some people having some apprehension to downtown Detroit, as long as uh, Sweetwater and Tavern is down there and Green Dot Stables, I am always going to be going down there. So, By the way, the Green Dot Stables, the, I don't know if he's the cook or the manager, but he went to Cabrini High School. There you go. So he owns, also he's involved with the Noodle House. I don't know if you know that. Yep. It's on Jefferson. Um but oh no, it's Fourth Street. Sorry, but I mean, yeah, he's uh, less. I can't remember his name right now. But he, uh, Cabrini Kitty, graduated with some of my nephews. I graduated from Cabrini too. So, but I mean, yeah, I think there's a lot of people doing well downtown Detroit that have roots. 
uh, I listened to a podcast this morning on the MC5. I don't know if you know who the MC5 are, but you can look it up when we're done. Um, but they were out of Lincoln Park, and they were sort of like the godfathers for punk rock. So they influenced like Iggy Pop, and they influenced a lot of the uh, like Sex Pistols. They were like a premier group that grew up down river that people don't even know about. In fact, if you go to the Lincoln Park Museum, there's a display for them there. Right, and to kind of touch on that, to shift gears a little bit, but you know, another big Downriver influencer, uh, you worked with them quite closely, Heinz Prechter, um, around 18 years ago, um, now that he's passed away. So, you know, what impact do you think, to kind of put this on a bit of a somber note, you know, what impact do you think the death of Heinz Prechter had on Downriver? Well, I, I never want to just personify, you know, one person, but. He did make a big difference because he was sort of like a big fish in a small pond um, that no other person was in that space. So if he would have been up in Oakland County, probably people wouldn't know him because there's a ton of automotive suppliers. And that's how he became famous by putting the sunroofs on cars. And so he was pretty sharp in that he realized he could make a big impact, also a big impact for the region because no one else, as you know, like Downriver does, people don't even kind of know where it is or what it is. They think it's like one city sometimes, or I'm sure people, if you're from Macomb, they don't even know anything about us. Yep. And so uh, you and I both come across people like that all the time. So he kind of put us on the map, primarily in the business world. And if he was anything, he was kind of like, he had good and bad points, but primarily he was like an Elon Musk kind of guy first, right? Who had really big ideas because no one else did for the region. And that is, and it was an era, I don't think you could still do it, but because he owned the News Herald, that also created sort of a megaphone for him to do a lot of projects he thought were important, but he also got on big boards. He might have been on the state chamber, I think. He was on the Detroit Chamber's board, I believe. And I guarantee you, there's hardly anyone else on those boards from downriver. So you don't really have anymore that type of leadership the same way, like, one person could make a difference. You've got big companies still down here, but it's not like they identify with Downriver. They identify more with their company, but they try to help out with the region. But that's the one thing he did. He took it upon himself. In fact, there used to be a magazine called The Detroiter. Uh, not the same one that's out our Detroit, but there used to be a magazine. He was on the front page of it once, and it was called The Duke of Downriver. Like, that was kind of his nickname. Uh, even though he didn't like the name Downriver, he well, tried to change it. What was his preference? Uh, the name he wanted was, I think, Metro Shores. Metro Shores, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, honestly, it's it's like, uh, it's not a legal name Downriver. So it's not like you could, because it's more in the hearts and minds of people. Right. I never minded the name Downriver. I could see why he wanted to do it, because, you know, at that time, cities were changing their names. Like, East Detroit became East Point. Right. And Auburn Hills at one time was a Pontiac t- Township. So they changed their names because for developers or for business people, it's kind of more of a perspective necessarily. But, you know, it was a tough thing to do, I'm saying, but he thought big. So I, I give him credit on that. And sort of when he passed away, I think uh, the mantle, even though, I, like I said before, the chamber, Southern Wayne County Chamber and the... Um, Downriver Community Conference, the News Herald still to a degree, uh, are sort of like the only thing people know about the area. And um, so it's it's a big challenge because 
it's hard to create. We don't have the lakes and the rich people, maybe Grozeal, sort of, uh, sort of like that. But Oakland County, when you have that many lakes, a lot of rich people. So most of the people that create the news, like I always, I remember once I tried to, when I was at the chamber, I tried to uh, find all the zip codes for all the reporters on all the three major channels and all the writers for um, Free Press and News at the time. And the vast majority were from either Oakland County or Gross, Gross Point, and maybe a few sprinkled like in Livonia or Northville or some and maybe Macomb, but the vast majority were either in Oakland County or the Points. Right. Um, very few people live down river, I mean downtown Detroit even. And so obviously when they only drive on the lodge their whole life practically, that's their image of Detroit. Just like for us downriver, our image is I-75 going in or Ford Street, but that's our experience. We don't know what people experience Detroit from Macomb County. So, but when you have the people that create the image of a region who are all from sort of the same area and they all hang around together and they all see each other, it does leave big vacuums. Downriver is not the only place. I mean, I would say parts of Western Wayne are ignored too and, you know, parts of Macomb are ignored and like, you know, Monroe is an interesting place, but hardly ever makes the news. Right. And I mean, I think that goes to your point of, you know, even going back to the International Business Board, how crucial it is to kind of expand your horizons to, you know, like you said, they're painting the picture, but they don't necessarily even see the picture. Well, another board I'm on, the, the, uh, Motor City's National Heritage Area. A busy guy, if you haven't noticed. Yeah, but that that board actually, uh, it's interesting. The person that's the chair of the board, not the like executive director, he used to run the hotel for Proctor. Now he's the chair of the Motor City's board, and he used to run his hotel. It was called the Presidential Inn at one time. I forget what hotels are not. It's the Holiday Inn, or it's the one right on North Line, right by seventy five. There. I believe that was a Holiday. Yes. Yeah. And so, but he was the manager, but he still was very involved. In fact, he's still on the board for the Chamber of Commerce, but his full-time job, he's the vice president for uh, the Detroit Convention and Visitors Bureau. So he put me on that board because he knows me. I'm pretty sure I'm the only person from Downriver on that board as well. And so, um, I one of the first things I've already done, I haven't been on the board that long, but what sites do they bother to come down in our area? And the closest thing, like when you see their maps, it's just, you know... Henry Ford, Greenfield Village Museum sort of yeah. thing. But so, you know, it's part of our issue to promote stuff. That's why I'm doing the history things because like the things I'm doing with the history, I ask sort of three areas. Like what is the history of the community? What is the more recent history of the community? Like who's famous from your communities, who historically, not just like movie stars or great athletes, but business people who you'd be surprised, you know, maybe how designed the Mustang or if you look in Lincoln Park, the Tucker car, which you probably don't know, but there was a movie made out of it. Uh, by, of all people, the great, the big Lebowski, um, oh. he, he, Jeff Bridges, he plays the lead in it as Tucker. Right. And he lived in Lincoln Park. He was a motorcycle cop in Lincoln Park. Now, I'm not saying everybody lived here and grew up here but and stayed here, but I do believe a lot of people got their good foundation to become successful because of the roots of the area. Right. And 
You know, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to cut it short here, but you know, I think we could have probably we could probably talk for another hour or two, and we probably wouldn't even scratch the surface. But um, you know, I like. I know our listeners like to drive on their uh, uh, listen on their drive time commute. So, Ed, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you'd like to specifically comment about? Well, one thing I will say about the the historical groups—they're trying to create sort of a regional association. They really haven't got it formally, but that was one of the things when I presented to them that they're trying to get their collective act together, too, to try to promote the region as an historical region. Um, but those are the things I'm majorly involved with, and obviously running the chamber for... I was at the chamber for 16 years. So, And I was also a trustee for Wayne County Community College. So mainly, I, my district was downriver, so I've always sort of done something with Downriver in a regional capacity. Right, and I mean, I'm, I'm sure I can speak for the, the entirety of Downriver that we appreciate the work that you've done uh, throughout the community and the work that you continue to do, as we found out today. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, once again, Ed, um, I really appreciate you coming on. I'm sure our listeners are really going to enjoy this. All right. Thanks again. All right, and to our listeners here, thanks again for listening. Um, Make sure you visit our website, trendtrip.com. Find us on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, um, pretty much anywhere you can find us. And look out for next month's trip. Uh, It'll be out probably the first week of August. Um, Beyond that, again, make sure to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Once again, thanks for listening. 